then let's get rid of you know, all these taboos and let's get rid of A, B, C, D, E. So we can spend a long time breaking down everything we think constrains us. But once you've done that, what you find is that the only thing is left is the marketplace. Everything can be corporatized and commodified and sold back to us. So we end up not being free at all. Welcome back to The Empire's New Clothes. I'm your host, Brad from MacArthur. We're about to speak with Paul Kingsnorth. He's an author and he spent a lot of his time thinking and writing about how does globalization, neoliberalism, affect us as individuals and as a society. If you're thinking, man, I'm so tired of people critiquing neoliberalism and globalization, well, you know what, me too. That's why I reached out to Paul because his approach is very different and I'd encourage you to take a listen. Welcome to another episode of The Empire's New Clothes. We're here with Paul Kingsnorth, probably the best last name of someone who've had in the show so far. He's, um, he's a writer and a poet, and thank you so much, Paul, for being with us today. Oh, thanks for the invitation. Yeah. So you are a self-proclaimed ex-environmentalist, um, among many other things. And what I thought was interesting is we've spoken to a lot of folks in this show and some people get really deep into the financial world and become disillusioned. You were really deep in the activist environmental world and became disillusioned with the exact same system. And so I'm curious how that came about. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, um, it's been a while now. I mean, I've been, re- I, I keep getting interviewed about being a recovering environmentalist. It's been quite a few years since <laughs> I recovered actually. Um, so I mean, just to be clear, what I'm—I mean, I, I wrote an essay about this about ten years ago, called "Confessions of a Recovering Environmentalist," and it was really about what the environmental movement had become, or the mainstream of it anyway, was becoming, and why I didn't feel like I belonged to it anymore. So it wasn't a rejection of a desire to protect the natural world at all, uh, and it wasn't a rejection of a lot of people who were doing that either. Um, just to be clear, I haven't sort of gone over to Shell and Exxon, if you like, um, but the mainstream of the green movement. Um, certainly now, and th- this was this was happening when I wrote the essay um, a decade ago, and it's pretty much happened now. Has become sucked almost entirely into the agenda of kind of um, what would you call it technocratic capitalism, effectively. Um, so the green movement that I became part of back in the '90s, which was really um, at its core a movement which was focused on limits, which was focused on connection with nature, which was focused on living differently. Um, as well as on the bigger picture as well, obviously, the global stuff about stopping climate change and, um, uh, and, and the politics needed for that was important as well. But it was really about changing our relationship with the rest of the natural world. At least that was how I saw it. And that was the part that I got involved in. Um, what's been happening over the last 20 years is there's been uh, an almost obsessive focus on climate change, almost to the exclusion of everything else. And the debate has moved almost exclusively now around nature into a conversation about climate change and how we stop it and primarily what technologies we use to stop it and maybe what kind of politics we have. So it's become an almost completely materialistic, very technocratic, very um, solutions orientated conversation, which fits very, very neatly into the agenda of, of, of the global machine, if you like. Um, because every corporation in the world now claims to be interested in sustainability. And um, theoretically, at least you could change the fuel sources by which the system operates and we could all continue to live in the same way. Whereas to me, actually, the way that we're living in the modern world and our our complete disconnection from the natural world was the problem, if you like. Um, And so I saw the environmental movement, often for the best of reasons, with the best of intentions, as I say, getting completely sucked into the existing capitalist economic order, which has now pretty much completely happened. Um, Still plenty of good people doing good work, but the mainstream of the debate is now about something called sustainability, which means effectively sustaining modern capitalism um, without using fossil fuels. Um, And as I say, having a debate about what technology we're going to use and how quickly we can roll it out. Um, So that for me is what leaving environmentalism was about. I wanted to actually go out and find out what the root of the problem was because i think that a civilization that can change the climate of the planet and kick off a mass extinction and destroy half the forests and fill the oceans with plastic has got a problem which is not just about the kind of technology it's using you know this is actually a much much bigger issue about who we are inside and who we are as cultures and what our relationship to each other and to nature is and that's not a political problem and it's not a technological one either so that was the 
that was a question, I suppose, that sort of launched me into that inquiry. Interesting. So it's almost that the environmental movement left you. It's not that you necessarily left it. You just kept the views you had and were like, uh, no, thank you. I won't go this um, this new way that's perhaps being, maybe it's a rough word to use, but like sabotaged by the mm. that financializing yeah, I mean, machine. I, maybe, yeah. I mean, I don't want to be too pompous about it. Um, you know, yeah. it's, not like, it's not like I'm the, I was right and everyone else is wrong. It's more that it's like, you know, a lot of other people feel like me as well. And I've, and I've heard from a lot of them since I, I wrote about that. So, that, you know, the green movement is a very big, is a very big movement. And there's lots of good people in it who can, who can see that. But the mainstream of the movement, if you like, um, the whole conversation around what it means to be a, quote, environmentalist now has absolutely been completely sucked in by, by the machine and was trying to oppose, which maybe was inevitable because in, in, in a modern um, capitalist industrial society, everything, every debate um, around anything from justice to nature to, to even religion to family to, to education, everything is, is had within the bounds that are set by that culture, which effectively now is the bounds of commerce. So, you know, you can have a conversation about nature, but only if you want to talk about the importance of growth and, and talk about it in commercial terms and, and, and talk about it in material terms. You can't, nothing else is really allowed into the debate. And I don't think that's what really the debate's about. So, so yeah, I suppose the mainstream of the green movement left quite a lot of people actually who were uh, activists for different reasons, I think. Well, I'd love to dive more into the the ways that you see how how people think about themselves and their community around them in this context of neoliberalism and our globalized economy. But first, you you mentioned briefly in a, in a lot of your writing and um other podcasts I've heard you mention uh, what you call the machine. Could you could you break that down a little bit and what do you mean by that? Well, it's a good one, isn't it? Um, it's a, this notion, this notion of, of the machine is one that has been talked about, written about by poets and writers for a long time. You know, I mean, yes. And do you, you know, listen to Rage Against the Machine? Uh, you know, actually, I went to a concert, a Rage Against the Machine concert in the 90s when I was still young enough to jump up and down. So, yeah, uh, not anymore. <laughs> I'm far too old for that sort of thing. But, yeah, I, I remember. But it's been a great type, great name for a band. Great name for a book. If they hadn't used it, I'd have stolen it and used it as a book title. Um, <laughs> but, you know, look, I mean, everyone, it's great. There's a great, very famous story by E.M. Forster called The Machine Stops, which is from 1909, um, in which he basically predicts the world we're living in now, in which everyone's living inside pods, communicating via screens, and then suddenly the whole system goes down and nobody even, can even conceptualise life without it. Um, you know, D.H. Lawrence, George Orwell, uh, R.S. Thomas, a lot of my famous, uh, my, my favourite writers and poets have talked about this thing they call the machine for a long time. Um, and really what they're talking about and, I, and what I'm talking about is um, it's this kind of nexus of, of technology, uh, increasingly invasive uh, technology uh, and surveillance technology, uh, the values of commerce, hypercapitalism, uh, and the power of the state. If you mix all those things up, you get this giant, you get this giant kind of apparatus which is enfolding us all, which is almost now at this point independent of us. And so we are existing as humans in this world to service the machine rather than the other way around. We couldn't turn it off if we wanted to. We're all completely dependent upon it for everything. We get sucked further and further into it all the time. Try existing without a smartphone in, in the West now. It's almost impossible. I haven't got one, but you know, it's harder every day. They're always trying to, to, to fix something on you. Um, you know, you're being monitored all the time, all the time you use your phone, every, everywhere you go. I mean, Edward Snowden's delivered some terrifying lectures on this. Um, we are entirely at the mercy of an economic and technological system that we supposedly built to serve us. I mean, it's all, you know, we're moving towards the kind of scenario that science fiction writers have been warning against for 100 years. You know, we're, we're moving towards creating intelligent machines, attempt, attempting to create artificial intelligences. Nobody even seems to know why. Nobody's having a serious debate about what the consequences of that would be. Um, there are some extremely disturbing things going on over in Silicon Valley in terms of the way that these guys are trying to create um, virtual reality worlds for us to live in and all the, all the rest of the stuff and the notoriously create ways in which we can upload our minds and live forever. All of this stuff, which is enormously, uh, has huge implications for what it even means to be human you know, and to have a relationship with our bodies and to have a relationship with the rest of nature. So this thing, this machine, which is almost a poetic description as much as anything, is closing around us and we can all feel it. I certainly can. Um, but it's, you know, it's, 
it's almost in a way hard to pin it down and it's also very hard to, to know if you can do anything about it or even increasingly escape from it you know because it's further and further you have to go further and further to get away from the clutches of it if you like and it's been building for a long time so so to me it's a great metaphor or description of the of, of the world we're in we're, we're we're not in the age of nature anymore we're in the age of the machine and we built it and now it's changing us yeah it's a it's an odd one because even to even to talk about it in those terms enters into what people can say is conspiratorial or um, radicalization, and and I think that's the that's the conundrum here is how do you have rational, logical, reasonable discussions about this without number one sounding yourself like a crazy fringe person, but the number two without just being shoved there by critics yeah well both of those things happen to me all the time so i've kind of given up worrying about it <laughs> to be honest i mean look it's um it seems to be seems very obvious to me that you can go and 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 um you can go and read um a lot of the stuff that is is look i mean there are very mainstream books about this right there are people like uh, kevin kelly uh from silicon valley there are other people writing all sorts of stuff about the the problems of the internet the, as i said i've already mentioned edward snowden um and the way this whole thing is working there's no need to be um conspiratorial about anything you don't have to have a, a you don't have to get into a, the territory of lizards controlling the world you know this is just the economy in action right that's what this is this is this is just this <laughs> yeah. is capitalism this is this is technology this is the human de desire and drive to solve problems and to play with machines we've always done this um and this economy and this culture um promotes those values and that way of seeing at the expense of almost everything else so uh, there's as i say no conspiracy required this is just what we're good at doing and the whole system is set up to drive us in this direction and and at this point um as i say you can't reverse it so when you come to for example talking about climate change um what you need to do to stop climate change is stop having a giant global economy which causes so much destruction and so much consumption and so many emissions but you can't turn the economy off at this point even if you wanted to, you couldn't. And so the only solution to climate change, which is why the Green Movement has gone in that direction, is to try looking for a better series of technologies to run the thing, right, which is what we're doing. But that's going to lead us further and further into this kind of smart economy where we're all dependent on these things and they're all monitoring each other and monitoring us all the time. So we get deeper and deeper into what the historian Ronald Wright has called a progress trap, which is that every time you develop a new technology to solve a problem created by a previous one, you create new problems you can't go back again so you've got to invent a new thing to get you out of those problems and you're going deeper and deeper and deeper into this reliance on on this system whether you call it the machine or anything else so as i say no conspiracy required it's just the perfectly rational um logical result of of, of a market economy and and lots of technology and, and, a, and a certain type of attitude and we've been in that since at least the industrial revolution and um, there's there's no way of retreating from it. So we're just having to kind of negotiate our relationship with it now. And so at its core, what drives this? Is it the system feeding itself or is it us as people desiring something out of it and yeah, just digging the, deeper and deeper? That's the big question, isn't it? It's, um, it's almost a theological question, that one. I don't know whether it can be answered. I mentioned a guy called Kevin Kelly just now, and he's... Um, one of the, uh, I can't remember exactly what he is, but he's a, he's a very significant figure in Silicon Valley. He was one of the founders of the big companies over there. Um, he wrote a very good book a few years back called What Technology Wants. And he's very much a technophile. He's very excited about all the possibilities that may come about. Um, but he's also somebody who sees this, this thing that I call the machine and which he calls um, the technium. That's his word for it. Um, as oh, the a kind of the technium, he calls it. Um, and he sees this as something which has its own life and it has its own teleology and it's rising around us. And he believes that this thing is using us to create itself. Okay. Which is a deeply, deeply sinister notion. It's very Terminator. Um, and as I say, this is, this is not a fringe thinker. This is one of the, um, one of the significant tech thinkers in, 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 in Silicon Valley in the States. Very interesting book actually, but almost a religious manifesto, curiously. Uh, and he really believes that this thing now has a mind of its own. Um, he gives disturbing bits of evidence in the book about the internet talking to itself in in ways that it hasn't been designed to do at all, which are quite quite um, it, it's good sci-fi territory. 
But who knows? I mean, you know, there are people like that out there and maybe they're right and think that this thing has some uh, degree of self-consciousness to it already. Uh, and that it's, you know, I don't know, who knows what's going on. But I, 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 I sort of get a feeling that a lot of the craziness that's going on around the culture at the moment, um, you know, culture wars and conflicts and people just feeling very, very lost and very confused about what the hell anything is, is something to do with the fact that we're all feeling so incredibly disconnected. We've got this very technological society that's risen around us. The coronavirus has accelerated everything. We're spending all our time on screens. It's, it's kind of pushed us much faster in the direction we were going anyway. And it feels increasingly like we're not really in control of what's going on here. It certainly feels like that to me anyway. So I don't know, yeah. I don't know what causes that or where it's going, but it certainly feels like we're in that place at the moment. Well, let's, let's dive into that. So let, we're living in a globalized system built on continued growth and consumption. And so in your view, how does that impact our sense of identity? Well, um, what's the meaning of a human life? You know, what's the meaning of a society? A great, what, great question. Well, there's, there's the biggie. I'm, I'm not going to answer it for you, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't need to be here if I knew the answer to that, would I? Um, you know, what's, what's the meaning of a human life? Every society is, is, it seems to me, every society in history, every culture is built around some kind of story um, about what it means to be human, what the meaning of life is, where we're going, Usually, um, right up until the modern era, era that was uh, what we'd call a religious story, um, which had something higher than humans at its center, a creator or a series of gods or some sort of theology about um, our relationship to nature and to any other forces that are out there that might have um, been responsible for it and might be overseeing it. And that's where, we get, that's where we got our values from, and that's where we got our story and our symbolism and the meaning of existence. Now, we don't have any of that. In the west anymore in the modern world we've abolished that we've told ourselves that that was all superstition we've got science instead and so we've had to create new stories to replace the stories that we had before which in the west was primarily the christian story and the story we've created is the story of progress and that's the story of material improvement and to some degree moral and ethical improvement as well um, and that's been the story really since the enlightenment we don't need uh, god or afterlives or any of that stuff anymore, that's not real anyway. So we'll create our own paradise here on earth. We'll do it better. Um, and so progress has really been our central story. And there are lots of ways to think about progress. As I say, it could be moral progress, could be ethical progress, could be pro pro progress towards, say, justice and fairness, however you define those. Or it could be progress in terms of material growth. And to some degree, we've had all of those things in different ways over the last few hundred years. But primarily, certainly now, I think in the West, progress has become almost entirely limited to the notion of material benefit because we've kicked everything else out and because we have an economic system which is um, entirely based on market values and doesn't have very much to rein it in at this point. We have a story which tells us that from generation to generation, everything will get better. We'll all get materially wealthier and that will generally improve our lives. Now, to a degree, for some people, that's been obviously true, um, but it's also now increasingly for a lot of people not obviously true especially for younger generations people are starting to grow up now poorer than their parents with less opportunities than their parents the climate is changing people are young people are really scared about that you know the, the state of the planet is really weighing on a lot of people's minds as it should um the stories that certainly we were told when i was a kid about growth and progress and getting a job and making money and all the, the, the stuff you're supposed to do to be a good middle class person and not working anymore and the system's kind of breaking down. The story's breaking down, if you like. People increasingly just don't believe that story anymore. They don't believe in what we have defined as progress. They don't think it works. Um, but we haven't got another story to replace it. At least we haven't got a societal level one that we agree on. Um, and because we've kind of knocked all of our sources of authority on the head as well, the only authority that people have got is themselves now. Right, so there's no one to tell us what to do. We don't, obviously, there's no God, and we don't believe in any authorities. We've kind of rejected everything from the state to, to the family, to schools, to the church. So we're all making up our own reality. So we're in this strange kind of Nietzschean world almost, in which we're everyone invents their own source of truth, and nobody believes the big story we're in. And so there's a kind of, as I say, there's a kind of void. It seems to me opening up around this, and at the same time, we have these rapidly advancing technologies, and also, especially in America. 
enormous growing inequality. So you've got, you know, you've got huge numbers of people who are just not able to participate in this at all. And also, you know, the, the gap between the rich and the poor, I think it's probably richer wider than it's ever been. And that's true elsewhere as well. I think it's probably true in Britain as well. I'm not sure, but it's certainly opening up all over the place. So maybe the story of progress that we've had that broadly functions, say, between the 1940s and the 70s and the 80s, maybe, that you could believe in, you can't believe in anymore. But there isn't anything else to, to believe in either, at least on a, on a social level. And so that um, seems to me the background to the kind of unfolding chaos at the moment. Yeah, it'll be so interesting to see if we, what do we, do we repair the story? Do we replace it with a theology-based one? Do we replace it with a um, just a different version of a secular story? It'll be very interesting to see how this plays out in the coming decades, 100%. Because I, th- I think exactly what you said, it's so fascinating. It's easy for, it's, it's so easy to say, well, you be you or create your own truth. Um, we don't have to deal with someone's differences if we do that. But we're seeing that backlash of, well, if everyone creates their own truth, that's the breeding ground of conspiracies and their alternate realities, and anyone can do whatever they want. Um, and if that's the case, you can't you can't point out social justice. You can't call someone out for their actions, um, which we should be careful doing with anyways. But do you do you see this as somewhat this this loss of story you're talking about is this somewhat of um is populism a backlash of that or a um a breeding ground for that is it um is it our bid to reclaim what we feel we're losing well i don't know i suppose it depends on what we mean by populism there are a lot of breeds of that there's a kind of right-wing yes, version and left-wing version, <laughs> all sorts of things so i mean i don't know what the word populism means really it seems to increasingly be a word that uh, people in power use to kind of um dismiss those who are trying to challenge them on all sides of the coin. Uh, populism seems like quite a good idea. Why not do things that are popular? That's, that sounds like democracy. Um, but I think that, um, look, I mean, a lot of the, the it seems to me that, what, that we're in this situation now and it seems to be a lot worse in America, not that I'm any expert, but it's quite bad in Britain too, where this culture war that's opening up is literally that. It's a fight over what the culture is and what it means. And on both sides, whatever they even are. I'm not sure they translate as left and right anymore. I'm not even sure what these sides quite are, but they are increasingly extreme in their definition of what the culture is or should be and in how everybody else should think the same as them. Otherwise, we're all cancelled. And it's getting to the point where you've got, it feels like there's a kind of Skylar and a Charybdis closing in on you. You've got sort of two rocks on both sides and everyone's caught between them. and that is a fight over, as I say, I think it's a fight over, it was a fight over reality. What is the culture? What's the story of this culture? Who are we and who are we not? And because there's no agreed reality, and because there's not even a shared sense of being in a culture anymore, for all sorts of different reasons, you can't come to an agreement on that because there isn't, it's like the center has dissolved away. So we haven't got a place we can all stand on and say, right, okay, come on, we're all here. Let's just sort of try and solve our disagreements. You know, societies have always been filled with people who disagree on everything. Of course they have, but some societies can hold together. And this one used to as well, despite the fact that everybody disagrees. There's something that's happened whereby people now see those who disagree with them as their enemies, right? Really viciously on all sides, rather than simply people who disagree. And I think some of that might be down to the fact that we're creating our own truth. Because if you create your own truth, if you believe that you are the only arbiter of truth and somebody attacks your opinion, then it feels like they're attacking you. Right. So you feel like you are personally being abused or insulted if somebody doesn't agree with you on some issue that's very dear to you. And right across the spectrum, right, left, whatever it is, there are people who are passionately attached to things that they feel that the other side wants to take away from them. So there are people who really feel that absolutely everything that has any meaning to them at all is going to be taken away if the other side wins. Populists on left and right, whatever you want to call people. That seems to be the driving force of the, of, of the divides at the moment because nobody can agree because they feel that if the other side wins, their entire world disappears and all of their meaning disappears as well. And there are people on both sides who would love to destroy the worlds of the, the people that they consider to be evil. Uh, and so we've got to this point where there's no shared source of, of meaning or even shared source of what the, what the debate is, you know, it's like there's even not even an agreement on how we should have a conversation or talk or, or what the values are. 
So it's uh, it really feels like everything's kind of pulling away from the centre, and people are just really getting very very defensive about their worldview, um, and saying you know we've got to win this because if we don't win this, you know the other guys win and then we're, then that's it we're screwed. So there's almost no coexistence, and it's very disturbing. You know that that kind of thing is is the prelude to to war very often, to to real conflict, um, if people can't somehow come together and thrash things out. So who knows? Um, but it doesn't look it doesn't look great. I have to say, alas. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and 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 in all this, I believe there are some some threads of hope, but I, it's a tough balance because you don't want to bury your head in the sand and ignore the signs and just say no, things are fine when in reality they're not. But it, you also don't want to just march down that doomsday path and ig- ignore any um, effort of, of hope as well. But I want to change just slightly. So in your essay, Dark Ecology, you spoke about or you wrote about how tools can take or give power. Can you flesh that out a little bit? Yeah, well, I was trying to write there about, I suppose, the difference between a tool and a technology and also about hmm. the, old, uh, the old green idea of a, of a convivial technology or an appropriate technology because <clears throat> I come back again and again to the notion of limits so much of the, the, the conversation seems to be about that or ought to be about that. And it seems to me that any solution long-term, any different way of living that's going to allow us to live better with nature and with each other, it's going to have to involve us re-embracing limits rather than trying to bust them all open, which is what our culture encourages us to do. And that's a hard thing to do because we don't know how to live with them and we don't really want to, right? Because we've got lots of um, lovely stuff and, and life's quite easy, at least for some of us. So, but, but embracing limits is necessary. So a lot of that is about technology again. So I was writing in that essay about how technology could serve you uh, and how a technology could control you. Um, and a lot of thinkers from, from Jacques Ellul to Ivan Illich to E.F. Schumacher, a lot of the kind of pioneering thinkers of the Green Movement wrote a lot about this. Um, how is a technology your servant and how is a technology your master? And if we were coming back to that conversation about the machine or the technium, that would be a good question to answer, right? Because the, the issue is not technology is good or bad. A technology is just something humans create to help them to do things. And we've been doing that since you know, the year dot, since we dug a hole with a stick or lit a fire, we've been doing that. So there's no getting away from that. That's what we do. That's how, we, how we're able to manipulate the world. So the question is whether the technology serves us or whether we serve it. So if you look at, for example, the example, the example I gave in that essay, was the difference between a scythe and a brush cutter. So I, I like to use a scythe in my garden and everybody thinks that's or, very- Or lawnmowers for us over here. Lawnmowers, yeah, lawnmower would be a good example. So, you know, I like to, <laughs> I like to use a scythe to cut my grass and uh, that's very amusingly medieval to some people, but it's actually a very efficient, simple piece of technology <laughs> once you learn to use it, right? Doesn't have any moving parts, doesn't have to be fixed, doesn't have any fossil fuels in it. So you don't have to connect yourself up to the external economy. Um, you don't have to pay people to fix it. You don't have to replace the parts very often. It's just a stick with a bit of metal on the end, right? So there's an example of a technology which is actually fairly sophisticated in um, terms of what it can do to cut grass down, but it's very simple as well. Um, whereas a lawnmower, which can certainly cut faster than a scythe and and more uh, more consistently, um, also ties you into the whole of the external economy, the manufacture of plastics and parts and oil and all the rest of it. So it's an example of the difference between a technology that broadly you have some control over and which is fairly simple to manufacture and a technology which even though it's very useful ties you into uh, the world of complex um, manufacturing Um, and that's quite a useful way to look at technologies and and tools in general actually does this thing serve you in your community or does it make your life worse i mean ask that question about a smartphone and it's quite interesting because often the question is both to some degree right so you have this phone and it's very useful but you're also addicted to it, perhaps, and you spend too much time on it, and it's monitoring you, and it's costing you money, and you've got all of these things to weigh up. So the answer about you know the answer to those questions is different for everybody. But if you ask the question, then we start to have a bit of an intelligent relationship with technology because I think we've got a really unintelligent one in our culture. We just again, this is the myth of progress to some degree. We tend to assume that if a new and shiny thing with buttons on comes along, then it's good. And if it if it you know if it gives us a dopamine hit every time we press the button, then we love it and we play with it a lot. But does it increase our quality of life? What are the impacts on the natural world? 
What's the manufacturing process like? What's in this thing anyway? How much fossil fuel is it emitting? Am I addicted to it all day long? You know, all of these questions are very good and necessary ones. We, we don't, we're encouraged not to ask them. So just asking those questions and thinking about each piece of technology we use and weighing it up in those terms is, is a really useful way to start thinking a bit more critically about, about how to live, what kind of balance you want, because it's always about balance. We have to all decide where we draw lines on these things and whether we want lines at all. So as I say, it's, it's, it, if we taught all of our children in schools to think critically about technology, got them all to read a bit of Ivan Illich and Jack Elul and think hard about the way they did their social media feeds, it would be an interesting thing to see if anything changed. Maybe it wouldn't, but you know, we don't, we just don't even teach this stuff. It's regarded as fringe weirdness to even ask the questions, but it's really necessary because this stuff is so powerful and controlling now. If we can't have an intelligent relationship with it, then we're just controlled by it. Yeah. I, you know, what you said in the beginning, I thought was quite interesting about limitations. And I didn't connect this dot earlier when you mentioned it, but I I think it's interesting where, because you're, you're highlighting how a lot of people, and I, I would agree with you that a lot of people, me included, we, we live in the system, but we're uneasy by certain parts of it. Some folks might be 100% in, but I would say a lot of folks are there. We like a lot of things that it provides, but we also are like uncomfortable with certain things like being monitored all the time and or plug in whatever your soapbox thing is that you don't like about the system you live in. Mm. And, and yet, when we talk about the solution, we are using a capitalist Western framework definition of freedom when we talk about it. And, and freedom in this framework is a lack of all restrictions, a lack of all limitations. Mm. But there's other ways to define freedom. And like, like you said, freedom can actually be the right set of limitations that are in line with your, the way that you operate as a person or as we could say humanity. And as an example, we all know this because let's say someone wants to go to college and learn something. We have to limit ourselves. We have to take on debt. So there's less money we have. We, we have a lot less time. We have a lot less freedom, but we're gaining something and it improves us. And so you could say that having that degree is freeing because it allows you to approach whatever career path you're excited about, but you're applying the right limitations. And so I, I think that's a very interesting uh, tension there almost of how do we wrestle with this idea of freeing ourselves from the system, but then how do we do it in the right way without just letting the system dictate our own definition of freedom even? Yeah, well, maybe it's the difference between the classic difference between freedom from and freedom to. Um, this, this whole, yeah, the, the, the modernity, if you like, teaches us that freedom is defined as freedom from constraints. Okay, so we throw off absolutely everything that limits us and then our, our free will, our individual, um, our individual free will, our individual self will be free to choose to do what it wants to do. So that's based for a start on the notion that there's such a thing as an individual self, which is separate from a community. Uh, and then it's based on the notion that all of the things which we believe to be limits are in fact limits. So for example, you know, let's get rid of religion because we don't need any of that. That's just people controlling us and telling us what to do. And let's get rid of family structures because we shouldn't have them because they're oppressive. And then let's get rid of, you know, all these taboos and let's get rid of A, B, C, D, E. So we can spend a long time breaking down everything we think constrains us. But once you've done that, what you find is that the only thing is left is the marketplace. And what you find also is that a lot of these values which actually can, we considered to be limiting were values which protected us from the kind of the, the chill winds of capitalism. So once we've destroyed everything and we're just a bunch of individuals, then we're just living in a world which will market and sell everything to us. Everything can be corporatized and commodified and sold back to us. So we end up not being free at all. We end up being entirely enslaved to whatever we happen to want to do, enslaved to our passions, if you like. And we also become enslaved by our sort of self-created identity. You know, these days everyone's curating their own identity, right? Because this is the world we're in. Uh, and we get sold our identities all the time. We get sold the things to wear and the things to do and the phones to play with and everything's marketed to us. Uh, and we're not free at all. And we don't feel free either. We actually, a lot of us anyway, feel very trapped by that. Um, and I think we're gonna have to learn again that limits are curiously freeing. You know, if you limit the amount of technology you've got in your life, you're going to have a lot more free time, for example. The stuff you won't have, absolutely. 
but you're going to have a lot more free time. You're also going to have to work a lot less because you don't have to earn as much money to pay for it. Um, if you limit your desire to have a lot of holidays or a big house or a big car or any of the other stuff you're supposed to be sold, then again, that's very freeing for you because you don't need all that stuff. And then you don't have to work to pay for it. So you've got a lot of time to do something else you might want to do instead. So there's all of those things to think about. What happens if you actually reimpose limits or live within limits? Do you feel freer? Um, and one of the great myths of modernity, one of the great myths of progress is more is better and limits are awful. But it doesn't, it's, it's almost to me, the, the, the thinking and the living I've done over the last few decades is, is almost convinced me that the opposite is true. We're sold this story that we are just free individuals and we can buy anything we want as long as we destroy every limit that exists, which includes the ecological limits that we're always busting through. And it isn't true, actually. Again, there's a balance to be struck. You know, societies can be too limited and too controlling, but they can also be too kind of chaotic and formless and individualist. And, and I think we've gone very far in that direction now, which is, which is what suits the capitalist machine, if you like, you know, because it wants us all to just be defined by nothing but what we buy. So, you know, it comes back to a sort of Gandhian worldview in a way. You know, what happens if you live very, very simply? What happens if you limit yourself? You might find that you're a lot freer than, than you were before. Yeah, it's an interesting way to think about it of these, these self-imposed limits in one way can be seen as restricting and another way could be seen as really the only thing that differentiates me from you or anyone else. It's, it's these flavors of uniqueness that I bring to the way that I live in the world. And if we remove all them, then as you say, we're just a cog in the cog in the wheel of this um, mar global marketplace. And, you know, um, you and your family have actually chosen to live a certain way based on these beliefs. Can you, and some might find this crazy, um, some might think it's a permanent vacation, I don't know. What, can you explain a little bit about uh, what choices you've made based on these um, these these beliefs that you've had. Yeah, well, I mean, it's all pretty. Um, it's it's not. It doesn't seem very radical to me at all. But some people seem to think it is. I mean, we live on a we 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 gave up the work jobs we were doing back in Britain and we moved to Ireland. We bought a couple of acres of land and a small house, a little house that we could afford. And we have just we grow as much food as we can. We grow our own fuel. We compost our own shit, which is always good fun. Um, <laughs> we teach our children at home. They're homeschooled. We try and live as simply as we can, um, probably not as simply as we should. I mean, I'm sitting here on a computer. I've still got electricity. I've still got a car. So I'm not, I'm not living uh, maybe as simply as sometimes I'd like to. Um, but no brush cutter. No, no, no brush cutter. No, definitely not. Definitely have a scythe, you know. But um, <laughs> again, it's very interesting, isn't it? Because this is the way that most people in the world live. Uh, well, actually, they, they live much, you know, in much more poverty than I do. Um, and it's the way that most people in Ireland lived until like a generation ago and most people in Britain lived and for most of history. But it's regarded now as deeply weird, you know, to, to bring up your own children, cook your own food, grow your own food and, and live on a bit of land. But it's an entirely normal thing to do. Whereas it's, yeah, as I say, regarded as, as, as much more normal to, to, to live in a big city, rent yourself out to a corporation five days a week and spend most of your spare time looking at a screen, um, which doesn't seem very normal to me. It seems a bit weird. Seems a bit, um, yeah. I just don't like it, um, and it's not, you know, I'm not, I'm not living here because I think everyone, anyone else should do it. Uh, it's not a moral lesson. I'm not pretending to be a good person in any way, which I'm not. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just, it seems to me to be a saner way to live, um, and it's also it gives you a bit of perspective on, on the the way things are going, um, and whether it's possible to whether it's possible to avoid it, which it probably isn't, and how much you can negotiate your relationship with it. Um, because I think if we're living in a time of collapse, which we clearly are in a lot of different ways, we all have to work out how best we can manage to deal with that. Um, and some of us, you know, I'm very lucky to be able to live out here. So that's a, that's a privilege not everybody could, could have. So there's always that to think about as well. You know, you have to just do what you can do. But, but it's... Um, it's a, it's a process of just thinking, okay, well, you know, we, we couldn't live the way we used to be living, at least partly because I spent a lot of my time writing about nature, but hardly spent any time doing anything with it, you know? So how much time did I want to sit in a flat in front of a computer writing about protecting nature and, and then just <laughs> never going outside? <laughs> well, you've got to, at some point, you've got to put your money where your mouth is, you know? 
So, um, yes. so there's that as well. Well, I'm sure everyone over here, <clears throat> they hear Western Ireland, they're like, ooh, that sounds wonderful, me included. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's nice and wet. If you like rain, it's a great place to be. It's, uh, but yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a lovely place. But, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting because in the States, you've got a huge homesteading culture out there. You know, it's, it's a thing that a lot of it's people do. It's true. I know a lot yep. of people in the States, many of them write to me. Um, so, you know, this, uh, and you have, you have a lot more land to play with as well. So it's, um, there's a, uh, you know, there's a there's a lot of lot of people in the states doing this kind of stuff. Probably they've been doing it for many many years. So we have just a little more time left, and I'd love to dive into a last little topic here because I'm very interested to hear what you got to say. But it's a, it's a big one, so I'm sure we can only just breeze over. I would love to hear what is your idea? What does it mean, silicon transcendence, and what is it solving? Yeah, I think that was something I wrote about. One Bit of, of a gear change here. Possibly. <laughs> well, this is, I think this is uh, something I wrote about when I was talking about Kevin Kelly and his book on the Technium, actually. And it's also the subject of uh, the novel that I published um, a few months ago called Alexandria, um, which is set a thousand years in the future. And that's an, a, a, quite a deep dive into two possible futures that might await us, I suppose, um, if you take the debate to extremes. One of them being uh, a kind of very primitivist return to the land where we can decide that we want to live as simply as possible within limits. And the other one being this kind of silicon transcendence, which is the kind of thing that's openly discussed, as I say, in Silicon Valley. And it's very much, I think, the direction that our society is taking us. Um, and what it is really is a, it's the age old human desire to conquer death. Um, using technology. And this is something that is openly discussed by, for example, somebody like Ray Kurzweil, who's the head of engineering at Google. So he's not some marginal figure, very significant figure in, in, in the kind of futurist movement, the tech movement, the, the Silicon Valley crowd. And this is really the conversation that the likes of Mark Zuckerberg have been having for a long time and investing a lot of money into, whereby we are exploring the creation of technologies that will allow us to survive after death, ideally by somehow transferring our consciousness, if that's even possible, into some kind of machine or possibly by freezing our bodies until it's possible to reanimate them at some stage in the future. So it's very fantastical, very science fiction-y, um, but also very much a reality. And there are very wealthy people in the world who are already doing this stuff. There are people already having their heads frozen in vats in Arizona, waiting for, <laughs> waiting for the future when they'll be able to come and live forever. So it's interesting because what's happened with modernity, with the myth of progress, if you like, is that having killed God and religion, we have no sense that there might be anything beyond our material body. So if you don't have any religious sensibility, obviously you don't believe that life can continue after your physical death. So we're almost trying to create a technological version of, of the kingdom of God, of the kingdom of heaven, if you like, on earth. And this is very, very much the direction that things will be going in, especially for the elites. Um, what does it mean? It's a very, very interesting question. It's one of the things I tried to explore in my novel. You know, can you can you even have a mind without a body? Is how essential is the body to being human? Is what's the connection between the body and the natural world? What's the connection between nature and human nature? Where is this actually going? Who's controlling it? Um, all of these questions are arising all the time. And as I say, this is the stuff that was written about in sci-fi novels fifty years ago as a kind of warning, and now it's uh, it's very much very much on the agenda. So Silicon Transcendence, I think, is the ultimate, probably the ultimate goal of, of the notion of progress, material progress. We get to live forever. And at the same time, we probably get to terraform Mars and we get to genetically modify Earth and we get to use human technologies to remake the human body and to remake nature itself and to reinvent mammoths, if we feel like doing that, something else they're working on at the moment. Um, obviously to genetically modify all of our food crops, um, to genetically modify trees so that they grow in the darkest streetlights. Good fun project that's being developed at the moment. All of this kind of stuff. It's effectively an attempt to use technology to completely re rebuild the earth in the image of human beings or a certain type of human being anyway. So that's the direction of travel. And it disturbs me a lot. And it disturbs me even more that a lot of people think it's a great idea just goes to show what a fringe weirdo I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in, in one, I, I completely understand the approach because let's say we create no more new technology and humanity keeps marching on. Things are super grim. 
So this belief that technology will save humanity is very optimistic and empowering um, to the alternate belief, which is kind of, um, it can sound very depressing. And so do you, do you think some folks believe in, you know, technology is going to save humanity because the alternative is so grim, not so much that they're like fully invested in this? And likewise, I'll flip it. Do you think some folks believe that it, technology will not save humanity because they dislike the technology and the change so much? Do you think there's some folks on both sides of that that are kind of like, you know, I'm just here because I don't like the other one, actually. Right. And maybe they're not even admitting that, but. I think that's definitely true. Um, there's a lot of people, especially in the green movement, who will say, well, look, I don't really like this stuff, but it's, you know, the alternative is five degrees of climate change. So we have to go with it, which is you know, a perfectly reasonable position. You know, if, if you have to, yeah, absolutely. If you have to try and pr promote something that you don't like to prevent a greater evil, then that's kind of a rational argument. There are a lot of people who do that. And then there are absolutely other people like me, in fact, who would say, well, look, even if this, even if creating this kind of technotopia would quote save the planet which means stopping the climate from changing i don't want to live in it actually i don't want to live in it because it looks like a prison to me um and but again you have to you have to really interrogate the question you know what does it mean to save the planet what does it mean to save humanity i mean what we're really talking about is a very very particular worldview very modern very western very technocratic quite male actually um, all of these all of these blokes are blokes or the great majority of them coming out with this stuff very particular worldview uh, which has a lot of assumptions in it about what it means to be human about what it means to live well about what kind of society we ought to live in what progress is what what we consider to be uh, a good a, a good social organization and as i say it's a very particular worldview there's a lot of people in the world who wouldn't even recognize this from different cultures and backgrounds we're tending to assume that these are universal values but they're not universal values even in the west there are plenty of us who don't agree with this stuff so the minute you come up with any grand totalizing scheme to quote save the world then you're on the on the verge of creating a tyranny because the world is very very big and complicated and people simply cannot agree on what it means and what a human life is for and you know what the value of a society is and what what our morals should be all of these big questions they can't even agree on that within countries let alone between them so there's you know there's a lot of very big stuff here um, there was a debate recently about uh, cloud seeding. I think Bill Gates had been funding a, an experimental cloud seeding operation up in the Arctic. No debate about this at all. You know, just experiments going on in the atmosphere, funded by billionaires, because the billionaires had decided that this was what was necessary to, quote, save the planet. Well, who gets to decide? You know, that's another question. Is it the people with the money who decide? Is it the people with the technology who decide? Who's, who controls them? Who controls Bill Gates? Who, who gets the permission to do this stuff? So there's all of these big ethical questions and philosophical questions as well about what it even means. But yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people are increasingly desperate, especially when they look at climate change. And they just say, look, we just, we just need to do whatever we can do because the news will be terrible if we don't. And there's, I think it might even be the majority of people who will go along with it for that reason. And as I say, it's a completely rational way to, to, to behave. Um, it's, you know, and it's, all the, th all the things that I'm saying don't add up to a solution that I can offer anybody, right? So I can't say, no, no, we shouldn't do that. We should do this instead. I don't have a solution. So if there's no 10-point plan that I could give you. So, um, I mean, I don't believe in anybody else's 10-point plans either. But, you know, if, you, if, you're coming from the <laughs> point of, if you're coming from the point of, you know, we need to save the planet within 100 months, then you're already at the point where, you know, only, only a radical global agreement is going is to sort it out. So... It's a, it's a bit of a trap because you you feel like you're you're having to make a decision of some kind or agree with something. You just got to choose the least worst option, if you like. Does the alternative? I feel like you perhaps touched on this. Does the alternative have a sense of hope? If if technology is not going to save us, is is there? What does hope look like? Well, it depends what you mean by save, and then it depends what you mean by us, doesn't it? You know, what do we mean by us? Do we mean human beings? Well, there's a lot of different human beings around. Um, and what do we mean by save? Um, save from what? Um, the world is not going to suddenly collapse. Climate change is not going to kill everybody off. We're all still here. We don't know what the future holds. So it's not a question of technology saving us to me. It's a question of how we build a society that we actually want to live in that has, that has good values. And to me, that's a, 
that's an inner struggle and it's a community struggle and yeah there's loads of hope but the hope is all to be found at the local level for me anyway I, the, the big questions about technology and, and capitalism and revolution and all that stuff uh, they will always bleed into tyranny and they will always bleed into giant control systems however well-intentioned they are but at the local level there's huge numbers of people doing terrific things and the most exciting stuff to me is people building communities based on the kind of values we've been talking about and also trying to change themselves so that they live differently um, which is the hardest work actually i mean having opinions about technology is dead easy but actually trying to change your heart is <laughs> so that you live differently is a hell of a hard i, don't know, I can uh, definitely well attest to that you know that's the work um so yeah to me i think it's a question of scale all the good stuff the exciting stuff the hopeful stuff is happening locally and the kind of depressing dark stuff that we all hear about is 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 the big picture in a way so it's very easy to go onto the internet and look at the big picture and get incredibly depressed but the world is still beautiful and there's something you can do outside your front door you know so there's that that's the way that i see it which is another reason we're kind of you know living out here trying to actually get our hands a bit dirty because it's um you know i'm a i'm a writer i'm an intellectual i could very easily get swept up in ideas all day but it's good for me to empty the toilet you know <laughs> Well, Paul, thank you so much for all uh, this whole conversation. I um, even during it, I've been thinking of things I have like connecting dots I haven't quite connected before. So it's been, you know, I did a lot of research, uh, reading your essays and listening to some podcasts, and was learning there. But learned a bunch even just speaking this last hour, which has been very fun. If oh, if folks good. want, yeah, if folks want to uh, read some of your work or your books or. Um, where can they find you and where can they um, track down some of your work? Um, well, I've got a website which is paulkingsnorth.net um, and that's kind of got links to everything I've done and am doing on it. And you can also read a lot of these essays we've been talking about on there as well for free. So see what you think. Wonderful. Great. Well, um, thank you so much for your time. It's no It's problem. been a super pleasure. Thank you so much for enjoying our content. We really appreciate that you're here. If you want to see more, make sure to like, subscribe, tag the notification bell, rate and review if you're on podcast, and definitely leave a comment below of who you'd like us to interview next. We read all of them. We love hearing your feedback. And so we look forward to seeing you next week.